this is Ryan Martin, one of the hosts of Psychology and Stuff. Now, as you know, my co-host Georgina and I are taking the summer off from new episodes, but instead we are re-releasing a six-part series on anger that I put together with my friend Chuck Ryback for my website, All the Rage Science. This is the second episode in that series, titled Physiologically, It Looks an Awful Lot Like Fear, where we talk with neuroscientist Dr. Jason Cowell about what happens in our brains when we get mad. If you want to learn more about anger, visit my website, alltheragescience.com. But the trickiest piece of anger is that, physiologically, it looks an awful lot like fear. Welcome to All the Rage, episode two of our series on losing control. I'm Ryan Martin, anger researcher at the University of Wisconsin, Green Bay, and I'm here with Chuck Ryback, friend, poet, English professor, and dean of the College of Arts, Humanities, and Social Sciences at UW-Green Bay. Word. How's it going, Chuck? I am doing Great. Well, Are you? not good. Well, You're well, well, good. I, I don't know. This is a pet peeve of mine, but I'm doing something and it feels good. I'm glad. Yeah. It seems like you're doing fabulous. I am doing fantastic. <laughs> Outstanding. I'm glad to hear it. So we finished up our first episode the other day. That was fun. Right? Yeah. yeah. It was a really good time. I thought so too. Um, I've been thinking about it since then, but I'm going to pull those thoughts into our discussion with our mm-hmm. guests here in a moment. But I, I've been thinking about some yeah. things that we talked about. I told my daughters that I was watching YouTube and they were very impressed. Nice. They didn't even know that I knew what it was. <laughs> so, was. Yeah. We have a pretty great guest today. In the studio with us is my brain guy, Dr. Jason Cowell. Jason Jason is a regular on my other show, Psychology and Stuff, but I think this is his first time on All the Rage. He's a cognitive neuroscientist here at UW-Green Bay who studies development of empathy and morality. How's it going, Mm. Jason? Well, apparently since it's a pet peeve, it's going well. It's going very well. You have to say good. Oh, geez. I got this completely wrong, so I'm going to go with good. It's going good. All right. Yes. Uh, Yeah, no, I'm doing great. I'm excited to be here. Well, good. Well, we are excited to have you. So um, we've been talking about losing control in this series, and our last last episode really dug into some examples of the wild things people often think and say when they're really angry. And it's gotten me thinking a little bit about what happens in the brain when we get mad. Hmm. So I just want to talk about that more than anything. And so I thought we'd start kind of simple. What happens in the brain when people get mad? Yeah, I mean, it's... uh... It's something that people have been trying to theorize about since the 1920s. So this would be the canon bard kind of uh, principles of emotion. But what's going on in the brain is... They used to cut up cats, by the way. Yeah, yeah. uh, we we should be specific on this. The original studies were Hmm. not particularly ethical towards animals. Our producer really just about lost it when I said that. I'm sorry. (laughs) We should not have brought that up. You mean they cut up cats to make them mad? (laughs) Well, I, I would imagine that would be part of it. No, yeah. they, they, they specifically were trying to look at some of the brain networks, and so they were uh, sacrificing the cats to look yes. at the brains. Oh. Um, but no, uh, along the lines of that, it's a question that's been around, and, and one of the biggest pieces of this is whether or not anger is a unique emotion, and mm. it's something that I know that you've dealt with a little bit on this podcast, actually a lot of it on this podcast before. But the trickiest piece of anger is that physiologically, it looks an awful lot like fear. One of the, the key principles of anger is that it's an almost immediate, it's that fight or flight reaction that uh, you'll, you'll constantly hear when you're talking about the hypothalamus and you're talking about per, uh, parts of the peripheral nervous system as they're activating. And it's your immediate response to some kind of threat in the environment. Uh, this is present actually in the majority of animals, and it turns out you can get a, a variant of a fight-or-flight response even if you've completely removed what's called the forebrain of an animal. So if I remove everything 
uh, on top of the brain stem and above, so everything that we would usually think of as the brain, you can still get some level of a fight or flight response. Is that the cauliflower part of the brain? The, cali- the okay. cauliflower part of the brain, yeah, mm-hmm. everything up top. Yep. Uh, but what's tricky is that it seems to be a certain set of reactions that the body automatically has to mm-hmm. some kind of perceived threat that's going on. So it's a physiological arousal is, is the term that we would use for it, but it's your heart starts to beat faster, you start to sweat a little bit, your pupils start to dilate. And so these are all of the, the pieces that we would measure if we're actually looking at it from a neuroscience perspective. Anger specifically seems to also entail a second set of slightly uh, longer, well, longer in brain speak. So those things are happening within about 200 milliseconds of you having some kind of stimulus that affects you. Everything else is happening uh, towards the one second range, the half a second to a second range where you're starting to have to uh, appraise the situation and figure out what is it that's making me feel this way or what is it that's... uh, is this making me angry? And then once you realize you're angry, oftentimes it uh, includes some kind of increase in those exact same systems. So on its most basic level, it's a physiological arousal that's happening that we maybe interpret in certain ways, or it's an interpretation of things that yields a physiological arousal. We don't know the causal aspect of that yet. Hmm. Okay. So uh, so walk me through, okay, I'm I'm, as I was yesterday morning, I'm in my car, somebody honks at me, I get mad. What what happens? Like, where does stuff come in? Yeah. How do I? So the immediate the the theorist I like a lot on this is Joe Ledoux. Uh, Joe Ledoux for a while. Uh, fun fact: he had a band called the Amygdaloids because he loves the yes. amygdala, and so it's a hmm. it's a pretty cool band. Uh, but aside from that, is there music? Angry. We're not going to take it. <laughs> they cover that. Yeah, there we go. There we yeah. go. No, but uh, Joe Ledoux has, a, has an argument that there's a low road and a high road. The low road is the relatively automatic. So it is running along basic perceptual streams. The second that you hear, in this case, the horn, it yields a potential threat response that's happening inside. And almost immediately, um, parts of the hypothalamus are starting to get you ready to either run or to fight. And in this case, you start to interpret it usually as, let's fight. Like, what in the world is going on here? Then you have a slow road that starts to happen, or the high road is what it's called, but it takes a longer period of time where you start to have, from the hypothalamus and working its way up through parts of the cortex, Uh, to your self-control type areas, you start to have uh, activation across that entire network, which should yield a certain level of down regulation. So it should start to regulate your anger response that you're naturally feeling or that combination of fear and anger that you immediately feel, that threat response that you're having. All right. So then sends messages presumably to other parts of the brain, says get mad. Yeah, so uh, kind of three different sets of messages that are sent. Once it hits these brainstem and subcortical areas, so the hypothalamus is one of the big ones that we'll talk about today, uh, what's happening is you're having unique signals sent to uh, some of the really old parts of the brain, the parts that evolutionary have been there for quite some time, and that's uh, some of your midbrain aspects in within your brainstem and those are really about preparing the body for response 
Then you also have secondary signals that are sent. So that's to the periaqueductal gray. That's also to parts of the raft nuclei. You're um, making these words up. We th- I am mm-hmm. 100% yes. making these up. Yeah. But it's actually a pretty well-known uh, anger and aggression circuit. And so this anger and aggression circuit includes some areas that are kind of located right in the middle of the top of your brain and some areas that are back in the brainstem right where the spinal cord comes into the brain itself. The ones that are in the back where the spinal cord comes in are ones that even some invertebrates have. So a lot of different animals have a variant of that. That's why you can see Hmm. flight responses in animals, and you also see aggressive responses in animals. And so a lot of that is governed that way. What's unique about primates and really about humans is is the other sets of pathways. So those are going through other parts of the amygdala, also going into parts of the cortex. And it's from these parts of the cortex that we can start to get at things that are unique. Um, Robert Sapolsky has some interesting work on the stress responses in antelopes and uh, his book, Why Zebras or Why Don't Zebras Get Ulcers, is a really interesting uh, hmm. idea of the stress response. And it's that in most animals, you expect to have some kind of threat come and go. You immediately respond to it, it goes away. Uniquely in humans, this also happens in some monkeys and chimps, you get this response where you can continue to perceive a threat when it's no longer present. So in most animals, when the threat is gone, the stress is gone, the anger response is gone, aggression happened, it's now gone. In Mm -hmm. humans, uniquely, you can recreate that without even having the stimulus present anymore. So I don't have to have that person that cut you off or whatever it is they did to you, um, they don't have to physically be there. You can think about them being there, and it's going to yield a comparable physiological effect in you. So you could, say, lie awake for a long time and think through these things that might bother you. Unfortunately, that's exactly Hypothetically, Hypothetically, I think we've all experienced that, yeah. Interesting. So do you have to be – so here's what I've been thinking about. So you have to be aware that you're angry, or can it – is it – can the response come naturally? Like you're talking about these natural processes, this alerts this, but do you have to be aware that you're angry? So I was thinking about um, in in different contexts that we've talked about anger or if I was thinking about psychopathy or something where you weren't aware of an emotion or you didn't, you just didn't know what it was, but it, it seems like people get angry at different things, but are we always aware that we're angry? So, I mean, that's that's a big question that I, know. <laughs> I like, don't know that, that we have an is answer to. Is that a silly question? Like I, no, I no, it's a great question. Or, or it, could something happen where you were – I guess what I'm getting at is could a, could you be conditioned to be angry by the certain situations phys- physiologically? Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, that's one where uh, – I'm actually a developmental neuroscientist, so I tend to study kids and how these these things are starting to develop in the brain. And that's where we get some really interesting insight into what you're talking about, which is especially if you've had early and often poor experiences, it actually yields a different anger and stress response system. Mm -hmm. Um, So we see children who have been maltreated that 20 years later, um, the nature of their hippocampus, which is another area of the brain that's responsible for memory, but it also allows you to start to look at the situation that you have and go, should I be angry at this? Should I feel stressed out at this? So you can kind of take Mm -hmm. tabs. And the problem is the exact neurons within the hippocampus that would tell the rest of the body, okay, calm down, this is okay, are actually killed off by the excess stress that happened early on. Mm -hmm. And so you have an inability of the system to regulate itself at that point. 
What's tricky is that. Hmm. And then you just sort of grow up and call in to talk radio a lot. I mean, yeah. isn't that the case? I think yeah. so, okay. Or, you know, comment in the YouTube comment sections. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, but no, I think that's, that's the trickiest piece is that there are definitely individual differences in this. A lot of people feel a sort of in our undifferentiated physiological arousal, meaning they feel really worked up, but they can't put their finger on, mm-hmm. am I feeling scared right now? Am I feeling angry right now? Am I feeling annoyed right now? And how do those actually differ? Um, so you're saying then that if that feeling were to become annoying and you couldn't essentially articulate what that was, that you're trying to work through to figure out what it is, that that's the part of your and brain that is trying to process that. Yes. And that's one of the keys to uh, at least my take on the anger literature is that in a normative population, so in the majority of us, as we're dealing with anger in, in, in healthy adults, you're talking about a complex thing of something that happens almost immediately where your body starts to prep, coupled with your ability to actually take tabs of the context that this is happening mm. and to use those kinds of skills from a top-down way to regulate yep. that response. That is different, though, in what you brought up, which is in psychopathy, it is different. So um, one of the key differences in um most of the studies of psychopathy are in uh, forensic psychopaths. So individuals who have been incarcerated, who themselves uh, have then taken a set of psychopathy indices and then they are scanned later. So there are some famous researchers that do this, like Kent Keel. Uh, there's actually one, I believe, at the University of Wisconsin as well. And these studies, when they scan the brains, what's interesting is you do see different emotion regulation abilities and different areas activated. The biggest difference oftentimes uh, in some of the studies that have to do with empathy particularly have to do with medial prefrontal cortex areas. So right in the middle of your prefrontal cortex is an area that in a lot of social cognition and it's coming into play in emotion regulation seems to be active when you're really trying to integrate signals from a lot of different inputs. So uh, in my work on morality, uh, we've previously referred to it as kind of the hub of morality. It's not the area responsible for morality whatsoever. It's part of a larger network, but it helps to kind of coordinate the network. And that's how I think of it there. That is one of the areas that we see Hmm. drastic differences in psychopathy. This is the part right behind the forehead again. Again, yeah. So let me, for for non-neuroanatomy people, it it is literally if you go right behind your eyebrows uh, and up a little bit. So mid-forehead, directly back would be your uh, medial prefrontal cortex. And then a lot of the things that uh, you'll hear in the anger and aggression literature has to do with, it's called orbital frontal dysfunction. But that just means the brain rolls right behind your eyebrows, back and in, and that's called the orbital frontal cortex. That's the, the rolling piece. And that's responsible for a lot of the regulation of uh, your emotional states. And that's positive and negative regulation of emotional states. Because so much of this happens so quickly. And that's the part I'm always sort of blown away by is how how all of this, everything you just described happens in less than half a second. Yeah, exactly. Right? Yeah. And, and so thinking about all of the different elements that have to be coordinated there. And one thing that we didn't, that you didn't mention in that is, is facial expressions, right? That, yeah. that you know the scowl, the, the opened eyes, the flared nostrils, all of those things happen too. Yeah, yeah. Tell me more. <laughs> <laughs> well, I wasn't sure, like, what parts of the brain are coordinating that? I mean, two different things. So uh, 
there are differences between what are called spontaneous and what are called voluntary facial expressions. So if the scowl is coming out of a spontaneous response to what's going on, it actually subsumes a lot of the same networks that we're talking about with a little bit of motor control as well. If you're trying to portray anger while you feel angry and so you're purposely taking that on, that's actually a different network. And oftentimes Mm -hmm. that's a sort of mirroring what should I be doing kind of uh, set of neurons that that are there. Um, it is a really fast system and that's one of the fascinating pieces because it seems like emotion processing generally happens relatively fast. We have some kind of response and we have a relatively immediate appraisal of what that response is telling us. Uh, Mm -hmm. they might come into play at the exact same time and then feed into each other. What's important, I would argue in, in understanding the aggression literature and the anger literature though, is the slightly slower stuff. So the stuff that happens in the second half a second after it's happened, (laughs) which is the coming back and reappraising, coming back and trying to reconsider the context. It's in those that we see a ton of individual differences in empathy and morality and anger um, aspects. And it's, that's where we see those individual differences and maybe Hmm. something interesting long run. Yeah, that's really So for a metaphor, if I were taking a tennis ball, you know those old tennis walls people used to hit off of so if i threw yeah. the ball at the at the wall you're saying it comes off on different angles depending on yeah. who you are so the original piece is going to is going to take the same trajectory same angle, yeah. but when it's coming off that's when you can reappraise in slightly different ways and have a mm-hmm. different long-term mm-hmm. aspect the reappraisal part though is tricky because that's we think partially based on experience, partially based on uh, your brain's plastic development to the kinds of experiences it's had mm-hmm. hmm. When I think one of the things that I think is really interesting about this and we've we've talked about before is this idea that, you know, anger is evolutionarily adaptive, right? It exists in us because it, it helped our ancestors respond to injustice. In order for that to work, it has to be fast, yes. right? It, yes. it has to happen quickly. And so it sounds like that first piece is the piece that is like instinctual. And then after that, it's it's still instinctual, but it's also that part is shaped a little bit more by our experiences. Yeah, no, what you're saying is exactly right. And so um, there, there seems to be uh, some people call it the gut level response of anger. It happens almost immediately. It seems to happen in most individuals in a comparable way. It is that second piece that maybe modulates your, your long-term mm-hmm. aspects of it. But it's that first piece that is the evolutionary uh, across most species, there's a variant of it sitting out there. So not necessarily the feeling of anger, but the motivational aspects of what anger brings, which is to fight, to fly, to it, it serves a purpose necessarily if, it's, if we're talking from an evolutionary sense. Uh, what's interesting is that it seems like in humans it's, it's taken a next step, which is it's not – we don't just feel that gut response to something that would be immediately – very scary and very threatening. Those same systems are subsumed when we're talking about issues of fairness, issues of justice. Those seem to also come with, uh, some theorists have called it that gut anger response that you have. So you immediately recognize things that are fair and are unfair within about two to 300 milliseconds. Uh, you seem to recognize things that are just or unjust in, different, in, in about the same time period. Now, to these slightly more complex kind of social interaction aspects, it seems like there's a lot of coming back at it that happens later, but you do have a gut level response. And, uh, and it, and it, it 
takes on the anger circuitry, arguably. Hmm. So could anger become useless? You know, could it become like an, the appendix in some <laughs> ways that if you're, far, if you're so far away from useful responses that Ryan's talking about historically that, you know, it's productive, it served this or that, but if you're far away from it and you're isolated and you're just in context where you're mad and it's tautological or, or something, what does it, do we learn or unlearn, I should say, do we unlearn how to use anger? You know, I don't know of any studies that have looked. Right. I, I've I'm seen learned helplessness degree. studies, and right so now. I think that's I mm-hmm. think that's the best analog I can give. What was it? Learned learned helplessness. Yeah. Um, but I don't know if that would happen in anger. I don't Maybe know. we could pause and give lots of examples now of learned helplessness. <laughs> Ready? <laughs> Go. You know, I would argue because I was I get asked this question sometimes, a variation of what you just asked, Chuck, and I guess I would argue that. In some way, you know how some of the, and I'm not super familiar with this research, but research on diet is, uh, says that a lot of the foods that we really, really like served us before when we, when we needed carbs and sugars mm-hmm. and things like that to survive. And when we used to hunt pepperonis in the wild. Exactly. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and so those things, and so now we live in, a, in an environment, though, that is where those things are less adaptive, right? And those mm-hmm. things just end up making us overweight. Um, I've been asked, you know, to what degree is anger like that, right? Where we no longer uh, we no longer use it the way we were supposed to, right? Or the, yeah. or supposed to is probably not the right word, but the way we evolved hmm. to. And like I, anger obesity. Yes, <laughs> and okay. and I would argue though that in some ways our natural response to anger, which is aggression, is no longer adaptive, right? We no longer yeah. live in a universe where. Uh, well, I shouldn't say that because certainly plenty of people are rewarded for their aggression, but there are many people who aren't rewarded for that aggression, where mm-hmm. that where that response style gets them killed and lands them in jail and so on. And so I don't know if that's if those things are, are if that's a fair interpretation to make. Uh, thoughts from both of you. I mean, I'll jump in and say I hear what you're saying that physical aggression is probably not in the current state the the most advantageous yeah. response. I'd argue the evolution might have come more into the relational aggression side of piece, of this, where in modern society it's shifted towards the pain that you cause others or the the aggressive acts that you're having towards others are actually more along the lines of severing their uh, their own esteem or relationship with others, uh, ostracizing them from a group, different things that, uh, this is some of the research from, uh, what is it, Nikki Crick and Ken Dodge when they were talking about relational versus physical aggression in males and females. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, I think there's some really interesting things to be gleaned from what 15 to 20 years ago was all about re- relational aggression as a primary female-dominated strategy as compared to males. And now it's not as much that way. Now there seems to be, it, it's, a, it's a useful set of tools. Um, right. And maybe mm-hmm. is the adaptive set of tools. I'm yeah. not sure. Yeah. So There's something about isolation that fits into that. That, I mean, you would think inversely that it, the more isolated you were, the fewer things and people you'd have to be mad about. But in you know, Ryan and I have talked in different times about internet trolls, about online experience, <laughs> where it where it seems that isolation is driving like increasing anger, that something about the social contact is actually, it helps temper the anger more, even though I would, because I don't study this and I'm naive, um, 
that being around more people would make me mad, but it's really the opposite effect. Yeah, I mean, that's so that's tailing more into the empathy side, which mm-hmm. is definitely my swinging zone that I love. But I think one of the I think the interesting piece that you're you're touching on is that taking perspectives requires actually experience with the perspectives maybe not themselves something that you know but reading about these perspectives or actually Mm -hmm. trying to I mean Paul Bloom calls it putting yourself in other people's shoes but it doesn't even take that it takes reading about it trying to understand these kinds of pieces one of the tricks in social isolation is that oftentimes you're isolated from a wealth of opinions but you're not isolated from the chamber that you are hearing and that bias that you already have. Um, so, you know, in previous things we've talked about, things like Facebook effects and mm-hmm. this idea that your Facebook news feed is being systematically altered in order to reflect kind of the things that you spend a lot mm-hmm. of time on. And so it starts to reflect your own political biases, your own uh, other biases. And that's an interesting echo chamber that actually tends to yield more focusing and rumination, I would argue, on the injustice. And that continued focusing on the injustice is that threat absent the physical threat being there Mm -hmm. that I was talking about humans potentially having. Have you looked into anything that's like, you know, so I'm I'm interested in the opposite of this when people do analyses of which countries are happier than others, you know, (laughs) which I read as saying, well, then some countries are less angry than others. That, I mean, are there social conditions that feed into that. I mean, is it possible in the as someone who teaches utopian and dystopian <laughs> works to construct a society that is more receptive or that allows people to be less angry? That's so for question. example, getting rid of roundabouts or stoplights <laughs> or yeah. or telemarketing or robocalls, right? The quality of life skyrockets. Um but is there something to that? Can you construct an environment, not just for an individual, but for people as groups to be less angry? Is that possible? Yes. Yeah. All right. I Why mean, not? Yeah, ultimately. What do I know? I'm an no. English professor. Yeah, duh. No. There's definitely strategies that we embrace. I mean, I think those things that they, when they do those studies, which countries are happy, mm-hmm. happiest, a lot of what they're doing is looking at, I mean, they're countries that don't have massive wealth disparities, mm-hmm. right? That don't um, or rage rooms, right? Or rage <laughs> rooms. They're countries that um, that that don't leave significant numbers of people exposed to uh, inequity mm-hmm. and um, or the like capacity to be gunned down at any yeah, moment, right? I mean, I mean, we can mm-hmm. we can identify a bunch of things. I mean, ultimately, I would argue if you're trying to create an angry society, it would look a lot like the one we have here in the United States. Yeah, that's what I was getting at. Yeah. And I didn't want to say it that way. Well, no, but I think that's one of the the keys. Is I mean, I, I look at it off of a stress or a systematic stress kind of aspect. But uh, you can look at any group and you can go. Uh, how do we make this group start to have in-group and out-group uh, aspects? How do they st- we start to have them battle more? And the key is reduce the resources that you give them. If you have a competition for a limited amount of resources, you immediately form an us and them. As you start to form that us and them, there's increased stress. As you start to have that increased stress, there's 
I mean, this was shown in some of the older studies on Robber's Cave where a group of boys, just by knowing there was another group that was present on uh, a patch of land that was a, a common campfire area, they started to have negative thoughts about the other group and to have violent outrage towards mm-hmm. the other group. And, and then you, they threw a rock at Piggy and he died. There yeah, it is. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, but that's the key. I mean, it's, you can see this happen in any kind of place, even on a micro scale where you reduce the possible resources, there's a competition for it, you start to increase anger across mm-hmm. the board. So I wanna to get to a, a, a question that I've been wondering about for a long time, and that is, so we've been studying in the show in our last episode, people who were really, really angry and how they behaved when they were really angry, right? Yeah. And so yeah. we ran through a couple different, actually, YouTube videos of Spoiler, people. Spoiler, it was not good. Yes, no, people, people do not <laughs> behave a couple well. myself, yeah. Um, and people who really, really, you know, lost their cool and, and yelled. And, and ultimately, one of the things I, we noticed is that they, they said dumb things, like things that yeah. were, were yeah. essentially nonsense at times or really mm-hmm. kind of. And so part of what I want to know is that is there a people, we know this, and I'll be honest and say this has happened to me, right, where I'm really mad and I say something or do something that later on I think that was a weird thing to think or say or do. You know, that was, that was dumb. And so is there a neurological reason for this? Is there a reason why? Do parts of our brain shut down when we're mad? I wouldn't say shut down, but I would say in, in the kind of accepted view right now, uh, they are less visible. You're, you're not going to see them as present. Uh, they're not going to be as effective. And so usually those are... Again, going back to your forehead, just behind your forehead, that's kind of the key set of areas to try to reduce you from saying stupid things. Interestingly, if you look at the first kinds of studies on the prefrontal cortex where they were looking at, well, what affects this? It was alcohol. You, you give alcohol and you start to affect prefrontal cortex aspects. So the same things that happen when you're drunk where you likely have a hard time, it's called inhibiting, but you have a hard time inhibiting your kind of speech which aren't necessarily things you mean to say, but are right on the border of things you'd be comfortable saying. And that's where you start to say mm-hmm. things like that, and you go. Um, that's arguably part of what's happening in some individuals with anger. So linguistically, then, there's like a an off-ramp, or I, I don't know, maybe that's not the right word, but the distance between, like, if there were a greater distance between what was acceptable, that you're going to swear more that you it feels like there's something unconscious that you know that these are the things that you're going to say that are inappropriate and they could be racial slurs they could be they're very sharp but i don't know like what seems far away is suddenly right there at the off ramp that's a great way to yeah. say it which is these are things oftentimes that would be beyond a threshold that you would be comfortable actually saying because you're more aware of uh, the social consequences of it. You're, mm-hmm. you're, you're doing more of a litmus test of, is this something I would do? And it seems to be that mm-hmm. when you have this kind of physiological arousal happening, uh, coupled with the attempt to self-control, your self-control is not as effective. Mm-hmm. Uh, it seems to pseudo override this. This is really present in uh, adolescence. So one of the arguments for adolescence in the last 15 years has been, 
we have pretty well-developed limbic systems, so the the area that's responsible for a lot of your emotions and your emotional reactivity and all of this, and much less developed, it's called a dual systems hypothesis, much less developed uh, prefrontal areas and parietal areas that help to dampen that. And so what you get is Hmm. up until somewhere between age 24 and 26, not as well-developed self-control areas and pretty mature and adult-like emotional reactivity areas and a disproportionate aspect. And that might be what happens in a lot of people with Mm -hmm. anger as well, which is disproportionate dual systems. So this is pure speculation, but I would assume that when people suffer brain trauma, a lot of times it's going to be that prefrontal cortex, right? I mean, just given where it is located in our yeah, I mean, uh, a lot of brain trauma is, is uh, PF, so prefrontal cortex or it's your occipital lobe, so, okay. uh, the, which would be in the back uh, and is responsible for a lot of vision-type aspects. Right. Um, you do suffer some damage there. Uh, you suffer damage in other areas as well, depending okay. on this. Um, the long-term studies that have looked at people with medial prefrontal cortex lesions, so there are some patients, uh, University of Iowa is famous for having a group of individuals who have suffered some kind of damage to the middle of their prefrontal cortex. Um, when you remove that, you do see reactivity issues. Okay. So it does seem like these are some critical areas for kind of not going on that off-ramp that you were talking mm-hmm. about over here. Yeah. Well, and that's my, part of my question, uh, part of what I've been thinking about lately is, you know, if, if people's brains to some degree, and I don't want to speak incorrectly about this or put words in your mouth, but to some degree, if their brains sort of operate differently when they're really, really angry, how can they control it? You know, how, what, what can they do? If, because when you're not angry, you can say, well, I don't want to say that stuff. I don't yeah. want to do that. But then it sounds like in, to some degree, you're, you're, you know, your brain is mm-hmm. operating like Do beta blockers help with that or anything? <laughs> there, okay. Uh, not necessarily. There, there, are, there are some arguments that there are certain for pathological level aspects of anger. So when we're getting to clinical disorders within anger type aspects, there's the potential that you could get uh, some kind of drugs to dampen the physiological response. And if you dampen the physiological response across the board you probably are a little less worked up and can look at it a little more clearly. Now, on the other side of that, it doesn't necessarily take that. Uh, There's a lot of arguments as to whether, um, of whether anger management is an effective solution or not. Uh, There's a lot of arguments about that. And the answer is no, right? I I don't want to weigh in necessarily here. (laughs) Uh, I mean, I'm not an expert in this stuff, but I mean, there there are arguments about whether the strategies are particularly effective at helping with neural rewiring or plasticity, which is part of it. Some people have argued that neuroplasticity ends quite early. That's not necessarily the case. We can still help to establish new neural networks. The things that seem to be working on a small scale right now are to purposely draw people to reappraise situations. So bring back the situation that made you angry. And at the moment, sometimes even with neural feedback, try to reappraise the situation. So I can I can tell you how much of a for there's a, a waveform called the late positive potential. So it's if I'm looking at your brain and I look at the very end of it, I can say, all right, uh, here's how much of this wave is happening, and I can create a computer program that will 
uh, show you certain things on the screen when you're at a certain level or when you're not there. And so by having that kind of immediate feedback, it does seem to give you an ability to start to reappraise in different ways. And so that's called brain-computer interface or neurofeedback, and it's a, it's a new set of things that are out there. Hmm. Like a Fitbit for anger? <laughs> like a Fitbit for anger. Interesting. Yeah. Of course, I've, a slightly there are more studies expensive that Fitbit for anger, but yeah. Fitbits don't work, but that's okay. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> so um, one of the videos we watched in our last episode was um, someone who went on a racist rant um, and it went viral and he was identified and then he later apologized and in his apology in his apology he said something along the lines of that wasn't the real me and so i know you jason too in addition to this to have a background in philosophy and, I do. I do. and so appealing to that as well as your background in um, in in cognero what do you think of that is that a fair assessment i mean part of what i'm i'm curious about as i've been talking about all this is um when people say things like, I didn't really mean that, Total I, I was myth. just being really angry, you know, is it, are we maybe more honest when we're angry? What let let me think? step in here. Total myth. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> there is no real me. I mean, that, that, I, that actually, I, I agree with Chuck here. Mm -hmm. uh, the, yep. the idea of the real me is a complex thing where uh, from morality and what I've been studying in that, it's... It's hard to say that's a good person, that's a bad person. It's a person with a lot of different acts that themselves are good or bad, and maybe we categorize them in certain ways, etc. Similarly with the real me, I'd argue here, I mean, you are less able to inhibit the things you're saying when you're angry. That doesn't necessarily mean they're not things you think about. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's an interesting piece, which is, is the real you the things you think about, or is the real you the things that you explicitly let the world know about you. Mm -hmm. I don't know there. Hmm. That is a great place, I think, for us to finish up. Um, before we go, though, uh, Jason, do you have anything you want to plug? Anything you want to tell people? No, I'm a pretty boring person. <laughs> All right. Ari, you're not on Twitter. I know that. I am not on Twitter. Is there Good anywhere people can find If somebody said, I really like that Dr. Cowell, I want to learn more about it. It will ruin your prefrontal cortex. I mean... <laughs> So you can look me up on the UWGB uh, psych page, but we will also have a lab web page coming up because I run a neuroscience lab here at the University of Wisconsin-Green Bay, and so we'll have a lab website coming up in the next semester or so. Very and as soon as I know, I'll, I'll have more mm -hmm. information on it. That is very cool. That's great. All right. So, Chuck, where can people find you? Do you have anything to plug? For anything you want to talk about? No, I don't. Right. Yeah, I'm boring this week, too. Right. Um, yeah, I'm on Twitter, at Chuck Ryback, R-Y-B-A-K, no C in the last name. All right. And I am also on Twitter at RyCMart, R-Y-C-M-A-R-T. So we've been talking a lot today about internal states, what's going on in the brain when we lose control. But sometimes whole groups lose control, and I want to understand that too. It's not a pro-social group, though. There is always some gotcha. leaning towards violence. They're either thinking about violence, they're talking about violence, there's a potential for violence. They're not getting together to... Um, engagement, like, like a political rally just to, to cheer on a candidate or um, do a peaceful protest. There's, there is that element that is leading it towards violence. And that'll be next time on All the Rage. Until then, keep it cool. 
All the Rage is produced by Kate Farley out of Phoenix Studios. Our podcast art was created by Kimberly Fleece, and our music was created by V6 Beats. Special thanks to today's guest, Dr. Jason Cowell, who keeps me informed on all the things going on in my gray matter. Finally, thanks to Haley Falcon, our intern, who not only has a super cool name, she does the stuff that keeps this show running. 